0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Call
1: 9419 8377 or go to 3cr.org.au.
0: 3CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis That's and current pants. affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am oh, to yeah.
2: late
0: 30am. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast... Three CRPs respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation, and we recognize their unceded sovereignty. Good morning. Welcome to Tuesday the 5th of June. It is 7.01am. I don't know what the weather is outside, but it's bloody cold. Mm.
3: Mm. I had
0: I had on two
4: jackets, so I can't really tell. Mm. Um, I had mittens on, so that was fun. Okay, well, it's <laughs> mitten weather.
0: It's cold outside, mittens. people.
5: Mittens! I love it. You're like a cat. <laughs>
0: So, did we say who we're listening to? Yeah. No, we didn't. Who are you? Uh, Ayan. Lauren. Anya. And George is in the midst of marking season. She's a university tutor, and Mm -hmm. she is drowning, Mm. evidently, in paper. She is. Mm. She's marking, I think, last time we spoke to her, she said
5: 125 Essays. Mm -hmm. So, and each essay is like two thousand words. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, homegirl is out there. Yeah. Yeah.
4: And knowing George, she actually would read through every essay. So.
5: She really would. Yeah.
4: Yeah.
0: (laughs) She's good at her job. Yeah. Yeah, She really. So, George, we're thinking of you in this time. So, just
5: some um, news headlines. Um, First of all, we want to just look at Razan Al Najjar. So on Friday, Razan al Najar, a 20 year old Palestinian girl, was shot by the Israeli military on the Gaza Strip. She was a paramedic with the Palestinian Ministry of Health, and those on the ground said that Razan had been wearing her white emergency uniform, a uniform that should have made her off limits but didn't at the time of the shooting. Earlier this year, journalist Yasser Mutaja was also killed by Israeli forces during the Gaza border protests, even though he also had on a navy blue protective vest worn by press staff. However, according to a statement by Ynet News shared on the BBC website, and I quote, the IDF, which stands for Israeli Defence Forces, does not intentionally fire at journalists. Palestinians have been holding weekly demonstrations on the Gaza Strip to protest the Gaza blockade, last Friday marked the 10th week of the weekly demonstrations held on the border. The Gaza blockade was set up in 2007 by Egyptian and Israeli forces after Hamas won elections to, co- to control the Gaza Strip. The Israeli government claims the blockade is necessary to protect its citizens from Hamas-led terrorism. The Gaza blockade controls the ground, water and airways. It essentially dictates every facet of Palestinian life, making daily living impossible and forcing Palestinians to remain at the mercy of international aid. So we thought that was an important story to flag because um, we, we are pretty much living in a time when a genocide is occurring and our leaders are pretty much either condoning it or not talking about it and yeah so i feel like it's the south african apartheid all over again um and no one is doing anything and i mean people are trying but the there's no consensus when it comes to outrage which is mm-hmm. disappointing so we thought it would be important to provide that platform for the um palestinian uh, rebellion
0: mm. Um, and we'll stay in the Middle East for a minute with some news headlines. Um, overnight, the Jordanian Prime Minister resigned from his post following a couple of days of pretty amazing, um, actually, the photos in the New York Times, pretty amazing protests. Um, protesters were demanding an end to economic austerity. And there's a few things happening there. Um, There is some, and this will probably come as a surprise to no one in this room, some Western economic intervention um, trying to liberalise the economy. There is obviously a lot of economic pressure because Jordan takes more refugees um, than almost any other country in the Middle East. Um, And also with the Syrian war, they've lost a significant trading partner. So the New York Times is reporting that, yeah, Jordan's under a lot of economic pressure. So um, we will see what happens if this resignation means anything. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, there was a volcano erupted in Guatemala That um, killed at least 25 people And injured nearly 300 people Lava entered people's homes um, And the death toll is still rising um, Two remaining large migrant cl- camps in Paris Have been cleared by police in the last couple of days So nearly a thousand refugees and migrants Have been moved on Where to is unclear at the moment mm. um, Al Jazeera interviewed a few people who had been sleeping in these camps who indicated that um, sort of anywhere would be better than here, but as it is unclear where a lot of people are going um, and they are now subject to what's called an administrative situation review, um, watch this space, yeah, it's a bit unclear and um, a little bit a little bit scary, I think. Um, and I also just wanted to highlight some good news in Australia. Um, following, I'm not sure if anybody would have watched There was a Four Corners a couple of weeks ago um, Where a woman named Saxon Mullins mm-hmm. um, She has um, spoken out about um, her allegations of being raped um, By, I can't even, um, Luke Lazarus I think is his name oh, Yeah, yeah. yeah um, and it was a really powerful Four Corners episode And, um, and it's, I think, um, it's generated a lot of conversation about what is consent and and Mm -hmm. what is enthusiastic consent versus body language and all of that sort of thing. Um, So the New South Wales Law Reform Commission has actually um, announced that they'll be holding a review into consent law, into what the definition of consent is, Mm. into how it's interpreted in the courts, into how it's Mm -hmm. interpreted in practice. um, And they've headed up a justice um, a feminist judge in New South Wales to head the review, so um we'll hopefully be bringing you updates about that because I think this is a really important topic to keep an eye on
5: yes yes, mm. Consen- mm. especially with especially in light of what um Girl said as well about consent um, the Australian feminist, one of the vanguards oh, or- Jermaine Greer. yeah, yeah as oh, that's as well. right. yeah,
0: in the last week talking about how um I mean, one of the direct quotes from her article, I think, in The Guardian was that rape is just bad sex, which is um, completely offensive mm. and dangerous and really damaging. Yeah, and mm. so, so that's it. That's this discussion about mm. what do people consider consent, and then maybe we need to be clear legally so that people can stop having these I didn't know moments. Mm. Um, anyway, so watch this space, and I think we're going to hear a bit of... Um Solange. yeah I think I think
5: we'll be hearing Solange because over the weekend, Solange had a concert in Sydney, mm-hmm. and we were just discussing it before off air, and we were saying how a lot of people from Melbourne left like well, a lot of people from Melbourne went to Sydney just to see Solange mm-hmm. and I was saying that even though I like her music, um my ass is not travelling that far for no Solange. <laughs> Not for me, not she for me, Hill. but everybody was there. The whole of Melbourne was there. Though. The whole of Melbourne was there, and I just want to give a shout-out to all my friends who had Solange sing for them. Not only did mm-hmm. she sing for them, but they had her in a little circle, Mm-mm. and she was singing FUBU, which is For Us, By Us, like a really mm-hmm. pro-black song, and they got their life, and they had an amazing time. So, shout-out to all my friends, if you're listening, and you better be listening. Mm-hmm. Solange love you, loves you, and yeah.
4: And if you're listening, Solange.
5: <laughs> if you're listening, Solange.
4: Obviously, we love you, too. Yeah. 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 Please come in anytime.
0: time. And then I'll oh, take... Oh. <laughs> Thanks for putting my mic on. That was Solange with Cranes in the Sky. Beautiful way to start your morning.
4: Hi, I'm Maurice
3: and I'm Mario and we're Chronically
5: Chronically Chilled,
3: a program that aims to provide a platform to those living with chronic and invisible illness as well as exploring topics that impact on our daily lives.
5: Listen to Chronically Chilled the first Wednesday of every month at
2: 6pm.
0: And now we're going to hear a speech from another of our favourite, favourite women, on Tuesday Breakfast. Um, And the reason we've decided to play this today is because later in the show, we're going to be talking about an issue that came up yesterday... Um, that looks at the erasure of black women, um, and in this case, in particular, Indigenous women in mainstream feminism. And so what Tuesday Breakfast always tries to do is be intersectional in our feminism. And Angela Davis is one of the most, I think, the most compelling speakers on this topic. Um, and she will really be able to give a great overview of what intersectionality looks like and what it means and why it's so important. Um, so hear it from the marvellous
2: woman herself. And perhaps let me move on to say that, um, you know, the mainstream feminist movement has made serious, serious mistakes. You know, I often point out that when when I wrote my, um, when I wrote a book that was published in 1981 called Women Race and Class, everybody started referring to me as a feminist. And my response was, I'm not a feminist. You know, I'm a black revolutionary. (laughs) Because I didn't see how the two had anything to do with each other. Um, But I realized that I was talking about a certain kind of feminism, a bourgeois feminism. uh, uh, a feminism that is still, unfortunately, um, yeah, white, white bourgeois feminism, which is unfortunately uh, the the most represented feminism today, and most people think of that as feminism. Uh, uh, but uh, but that ignores the fact that huge numbers of of of, of organic and, and 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 academic intellectuals who are women of color have transformed the very nature of feminism and the hallmark of feminism today is what we call intersectionality <laughs> a recognition of the and not only not only the interrelating um uh character of identities, but as I frequently say, I think intersectionality is, is most helpful when we think about the intersectionality of social justice struggles. Uh, uh, the mistake made by mainstream Feminism And its continued reliance on categorical representations of women. As soon as one assumes that, that women can be categorically represented, it means that there is some clandestine racialization happening there, right? And you hear the term glass ceiling feminism. I don't know whether you have that here. Glass ceiling feminism? Um, this is what... Uh, Hillary Clinton uh, (laughs) represented. But, But glass ceiling feminism is represented, it's grounded from the very outset in hierarchies. I mean, how else does that metaphor work? Those who are already high enough to reach the ceiling are probably white, and then if they're not white, they are already affluent because they're at the top. All they have to do is pushed through the ceiling. And as long as I have identified as a feminist, it has been clear to me that any feminism that privileges those who already have privilege is bound to be irrelevant to poor women, working class women, women of color, trans women, trans women of color. Standards for feminism are created by those who have already ascended economic hierarchies and are attempting to make the last climb to the top. How is this relevant to women who are at the very bottom? Revolutionary hope resides precisely among those women who have been abandoned by history and who are now standing up and making their demands heard. I truly believe, and men should applaud this, that this is the era of women. I truly believe that. And I am referring not to the women who just have, who only have to break the ceiling to get where they wanna go. Uh, But I'm referring to the women at the very bottom. Poor women, black women, Muslim women, indigenous women, queer women, trans women. As a matter of fact, trans women of color have been most despised, most subject to state violence, most subject to individual violence. Uh, And so it seems to me that um, we can say that That people who have suffered in that way, when they begin to rise, the whole world will rise with them. The whole world will rise with them. If we stand up against racism, we want much more than inclusion. Inclusion is not enough. Diversity is not enough. And as a matter of fact, we do not wish to be included in a racist society. If we say, if we say no to hetero then we do not want to be assimilated into a misogynist and hetero patriarchal society. If we say no to poverty, we do not want to be contained by a capitalist structure that values profits more than human beings. If we recognize that those who wanted to solve the problem of slavery by creating more humane forms of slavery, were employing the logic of racism We say that those who call for police reform and prison reform while retaining the racist structures as they pretend to address the problems of racism, that they are absolutely wrong. And this is why we say no to carceral feminism and yes to abolition feminism. Yes, to abolition feminism. And so I want to conclude by suggesting that our notion of revolution, our notions of revolution, need to be far more capacious than they have been in the past certainly we need to dispose of what has become an unmanageable system of global capitalism that permits the eight richest billionaires in the world to control as much wealth as the poorest half half of the population that is absolutely obscene and even those billionaires should think that it's obscene but also recognize that we must be prepared to continually challenge that which appears to us to be most normal. Revolution upsets normative processes. Class-based, gender-based, race-based, sexuality-based, ability-based, and I'm just beginning the list. And in this sense, there will always be revolutions looming in the future. Thank you very much.
0: Ah, love her. So I hope you enjoyed that. That was Angela Davis for people who have just tuned in. And if you'd like to watch the full speech for herself, you can um, go on YouTube and look for Angela Davis criticizing mainstream or bourgeois feminism. Um, And the reason that, like I said, the reason we thought that it was important to hear from her, particularly today, was in the wake of a bit of some, um, yeah, some white feminism drama happening yesterday. Anya, would you like to take us through it? Um,
4: So the way I understand it, and jump in if I'm if I'm not wrong, um, this publication called Mianjin, Mianjin, um, which is an Aboriginal word. um, It's a place that we know as Brisbane. mm Um, they published an article about the Me Too movement which was written by Clementine Ford and Anna Spargo, right? Yeah. And they well, they messed up the, the cover, cover page, um, by sort of erasing the word manjin to say me too. Um and it was done in a in a red sort of scribble and just I'm not sure if I'm explaining it well, but if you go on Twitter or just Google it, I'm sure it'll come up. Um, and I guess nobody really picked up on how terrible of an idea that was um, until um, a, an indigenous woman and activist, um, Amy McGuire, um, sort of talked about it and said, this, this is very hurtful. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then people were like, oh, my God. You're right, and there was all this hoo ha, and the the editor of the the publication issued an apology. I think it was this morning or late last night. I saw it this morning, um, and Clementine Ford and Anna Spargo Ryan also apologized and said um, that whatever whatever money they make from that article would go to an indigenous organisation and um, and sort of like yeah, everyone has sort of apologized, but it still left a lot of people feeling very hurt and confused, and and just being like, why does this always happen to us? Why doesn't anyone pick up on this? And
0: mm. um, yeah. And maybe we need to give a bit of um, an explanation in case people um, in case people are unaware of why that's hurtful um, to Indigenous women. Do you want to? Yeah.
4: Um, I i mean i don't i don't think any of us here are really qualified to talk about it in in too much no. um, detail obviously, but I think um, the erasure of an indigenous word um, firstly is is terrible, but also to do it in that in that color and to sort of then use a, a largely um, I mean, Me Too isn't isn't a white movement at all. It was started by a black woman about a decade ago, but it's sort of become a white feminist um, movement. And to sort of use that on top um, of this um, of this word, it's just
0: it's it's like symbolic of white feminism stamping out or excluding women of color, and particularly indigenous women. Yeah. From and that
4: nobody picked up on it. Mm. Also, talks about how the editorial team or the publishing team probably doesn't have, you know, indigenous voices. They don't.
0: Jonathan Green said this morning that he wants to um, hire you know, more diverse. Mm. Mm.
5: Did, did, sorry, mm. I sort of blanked out, but did they apologise? They did, yeah. So, Jonathan
0: did. Green, who's a, um, I'm sure most listeners will know, he's a journalist and he's been the editor of Gin for a long time. Um, he issued an apology this morning. It was his editorial decision to run with that cover. Um, and Clementine Ford and Anna Spargo Ryan saw it before it went to press, but after he'd already made the decision. So I guess there was an opportunity for them to recognize that it was problematic and mm. say something. Mm. but They didn't. Um, but Jonathan has taken responsibility for it. Mm. Um, and look, there's been a lot of really interesting conversations, and particularly between him and Amy Maguire, Um about, and this comes back to what we were just talking about off air, is at what point um, are you expecting that somebody should know something and, um, you know, and writing them off for not knowing it? Mm. Or like, how much space do we give people to learn about things or to make mistakes that mm. are potentially really hurtful to other people? Mm. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think a lot, of, a lot of people on Twitter have um, have sort of said, okay, well, they've learned from this. Mm. Yeah,
4: at the expense of so much hurt and confusion. I mean, I don't know. Like when I first saw the picture, I thought it was um, it was a joke, or someone was trying to be funny, or you know, it was just so bizarre and jarring. Mm. I thought this couldn't possibly be real. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's it's supposed to be um a publication that you know vo- centers indigenous voices. The, the article was written by these so-called intersectional feminists who really care about race and class and structure. How did nobody pick up on it? it is just, mm. it's incredible to me. Mm. Um, mm. And I'm not, I don't think I am, you know, I, I'm not a writer. Like, it just does not, maybe because I'm a woman of colour, I pick up on these things, maybe. Mm.
5: Mm. It just seems so clear cut. It mm. wasn't one of those, oh, I can see why they would have thought that it just seems so obviously problematic Mm. that I don't know why people who claim to be allies didn't pick up on that, right? And I I like what you said, and also Jed Press, D-J-E-D Press, who are on Twitter. um, They're a publication which features features articles by um, writers of color, but they made a good point on Twitter because they said that this could have been avoided had they hired people Mm. of color on their staff. And you and I, um, Anya, were also talking about the Dove soap Mm. ad.
4: Can you tell us about how that Uh, ad went down? Yeah, I think um, the ad was something like this black person uses the Dove um, soap or shampoo or whatever and then becomes white, basically. (laughs) Um, And it it went on tv people mm. i mean it went through all these stages of production and people thought yeah that's fine that's that's not a problem at all and mm. it, and it was aired. and then they were like right we see why that's bad mm. yeah how did you not pick up on that
0: but it's all of it and like kendall jenner saving the world in the pepsi in the ad pepsi, yeah. you know like yeah. all of these it's just i feel like we we should be holding people to a higher standard when this is literally their job. Yeah, mm. like it's when not you even that are, standard, When it? your job is intersectional feminist, <laughs> like we,
5: yeah. Mm. And that and that makes me think, are people intersectional feminists because they really are or is it all for sure? Is it the right thing to say? Mm. It's like when people say racism um, is no longer a thing because mm. we don't see it as often. And no people are just smarter about their racism it's behind closed doors Mm -hmm. right because they know people won't put up with it so if people are like banging on about being intersectional feminists like how much do you practice that in your real life because it's one thing to say it but if you're not applying it to your life and applying it to your decisions Mm -hmm. you know can you still consider yourself an intersectional feminist and look I want to be um, sympathetic and say um maybe it was something maybe they had like a temper temporary suspension of judgment mm. like i want to say that but also this is a pattern of white feminism mm. and i think that's what it boils down to people who come from privileged communities or are closer to privilege not thinking about like outside of themselves And I guess, like you said, Lauren, that was the issue of the Me Too movement where when there was a focus on sexual assault, it was always certain victims were prioritized over other victims. Mm -hmm. So it was usually white women or people with money or people who have access to, you know, get their story heard, um, who were the focus of attention. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was disappointing. But it's also... um, Nice that they apologized, not nice, but it's they did the right thing. Mm-hmm. Like we shouldn't give them cookie points, but mm. also
4: I think it was it was a, like a decent apology. It, it was a decent a, apology. Yeah. It wasn't
5: yeah, it wasn't one of those like um you're being too sensitive. Mm, like you're it's off- too I'm peaceful. sorry you're
4: offended. It was more like we messed up. Yeah.
5: So yeah. um but also I'm not from like the indigenous communities. Mm. Yeah. Um so The apology, um, it's not my place to take it or not, Mm -hmm. but I I thought that was an apology in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Um, But up next, we will be chatting to an MV who is, sorry about that, um, a sound artist and designer in a few minutes.
2: 3CR are selling Kafir Palestinian scarves in support Go to tcr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours.
6: Genocide here is a lot more sneaky than it is in Rwanda or other places around the world. It's one thing whitefellas learnt in the last 200 years to be very sneaky about their genocide. You look at the 38 nations that were here before white settlement and then you count up the numbers that are still surviving still out there doing their business on their country well there's only 25 left so what happened to the other 13?
0: Let's talk about the black GST genocide to be stopped sovereignty acknowledged and treaties made. Tune in I to eat. Fire First every Wednesday from 11am right. to
1: Rumination. 3CR's
3: Rooming House and Homeless Persons Issues program featuring information on health and housing services as well as live local guests, artists, and performers from our unsung community. Join us at 12 pm on Thursday on 3CR 855
2: AM. All right. yeah.
5: Good morning. If you're tuning in, you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast with myself, Ayan, Lauren, and Anya. George isn't with us because Sister Girl is marking 125 essays with approximately 2,000 plus words. Um, so, yeah, so um, good luck to her. Um, but before we hear from the amazing MV, MV has chosen a song um And the song is called KF by Kanza. I'm Black Betty, and you can join me for Black Noise Radio each Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. Join me each week as I serve you up a deadly fine offering of all things black as we explore black Australia and everything fabulous it has on the offer. We'll check out and see what's making black news locally and from right around Australia. And we'll explore all things Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and the deadly solid culture and people with a look at community news, views, music, culture and the arts hope you can join me for Black Noise Radio featuring black news, views, current affairs, music, culture and the arts from an Aboriginal woman's perspective. That's me, Black Betty. I'll see you Thursdays at 2. And welcome back. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 8.55am on 3CR Community Radio. And
3: yeah, well, um, hey, it's MV. So we we're just listening to Chaos. I'm
5: with that voice. By, oh, by oh, Kansa.
3: Okay. And I wanted to play that song because it's um, an obsession of mine. But um, Kansa is a Lebanese artist. Um, he's he's a queer male and, uh, and also a belly dancer. But what he's doing is just reclaiming sort of perhaps what's probably viewed as a sort of. Um, Feminine kind of type of dance And and sort of infiltrating that For the the Lebanese community And he sings in Arabic And the words to those songs are um, uh, Sort of Hmm. translated From an old song um, Which I assume was a woman uh, Singing to um, a man So like he's breaking down lots of yeah. barriers here and being controversial so it's um, a man speaking about like um, his love and trying to attain the love mm. of another male so yeah uh, look them yeah. up the clip I was just mm. telling the crew is amazing like it's it's it's, it's very it's, you know it's very seductive mm. uh, but it's, it just plays on that sort of um, feminization mm. of um, the male form and all that sort of thing so yeah
5: yeah done mm-hmm. and we're putting it up on our Facebook page mm-hmm. Remind us, because, yeah, folks have to see that video by the sounds of it. So with us, we have um, Mikhail, also known as MV. Um, MV is a Melbourne-based sound artist and designer working with sound and noise by exploring their concept of deconstruction in the context of creating as informed by spatial and auditory restrictions and boundaries. They have exhibited nationally and internationally as a sound designer sound consultant and sound technician, both URL and IRL, which is online and offline Mm -hmm. um, for our listeners who may not be tech savvy. They volunteer at 3CR as a content producer and programmer for current affairs and intersectional queer programming. Their recent sound work was created for a projection called Matter by lead artist Yandel. The projection will appear in the annual festival held in Hobart, called Dark Mofo. Uh, oh, um,
3: Thank you for the intro there. And also, before we start, I'd just like to um, acknowledge the land that we're on as well. I, I know that perhaps you've already mentioned this, but just to pay respects to people of the mm-hmm. Wurundjeri and the Wrong people, um, just because of the land that we work and live and do everything else on, um, yes. and they're the original custodians of the land, but also just want to extend that acknowledgement to um, any Indigenous uh, queer people out there, so sister girls and brother boys and any other queer identities, and just I want to pay respects to uh, queer, queer elders who've come before me and have been able to pave the way that I can be the person that I am without um, too much discrimination, <laughs> and yeah. so... Yeah, um there's a lot of people that have come be- before me who have made it um, a lot easier for me to be the person that I am. So just want to make that acknowledgement. So yeah, about me, I'm amazing. No.
5: <laughs> <laughs> about me. Well you said it enough, I feel like, but no, I'm kidding. Um MV so Before we get into the questions, I met MV when I first joined 3CR Community Radio. So Gab, who is our current affairs producer, was on holiday, and MV was filling in at the time. And that is how I met MV, and MV showed me the ropes of 3CR Community Radio. Um, I feel like taught me a lot of the things that I know. Um, So yes, MV was pretty amazing. Um, and we're trying to fix the mic because, as you can hear, that squeaky god-forsaken sound is coming <laughs> through. So hopefully that is a bit better. But, yeah, so as I, as I was saying, MV was my mentor and continues to be my mentor. And I really wanted them on because I feel like they are... The reason why 3CR community radio continues to exist and why you should also be donating to Tuesday Breakfast at Radiothorn during Radiothorn, and we'll have all that information up. Um, okay, so MV, can you tell yeah. us why you joined 3CR?
3: So, I know I said this story to many people, but I did it for like my own purposes at first. <laughs> so, it was in 2013 and I was going to study sound at RMIT. And someone's like you know you should really go and volunteer at a radio station just so you can get in the groove and start doing stuff so it was all mm-hmm. for like my own purposes um i had worked in um my background is nursing as well so i'd worked in new south wales um in a lot of union activism so i was a branch president for for my hospital and we were just you know always organizing stop works and that so i had a bit of politicism in me but i joined because of because I was being greedy <laughs> however I soon learned that you know the community that is within the radio station is amazing and you know not long into it I was approached by Liam um, McLean who is a training and volunteers coordinator at the moment saying if I want to join the current affairs team and I started um, producing content on Wednesday Breakfast years ago oh, wow. um but that was the reason, so greedy at first, but wait, I don't know if greedy is the right word, but the the ambiance here is incredible and being able to learn from so many people and have conversations with people of diverse backgrounds, like I feel so privileged to have met the people that I have here. The networking has been amazing and just such a steep learning curve in relation to sol- uh, social politicism um, mm. and being really socially aware, like the learning curve has been remarkable and it's been really exciting to be involved in a lot of campaigns and mm-hmm. just the types of work that's involved in 3CR, it's really good. Gives me vitality and mm-hmm. gives me, I, it sounds a bit naff, but you know, it's something to live for. Like mm-hmm. I, you know, I really enjoy when I go to rallies and I see you peeps there mm-hmm. and like, and that's really exciting, excite. well. it's really, it's, it's incredible. And so you turn up to these events and, you feel, like, this sense of solidarity, and that's what it feels like when you come here. So that's a really roundabout, mm. really long sort of explanation as to why um, I started at 3CR. Mm. But, like, obviously, you know, that was 2013. It's been five years, and, mm. yeah, it's addictive. It really is. It's addictive. It <laughs> it's, really it's, is. It's, it's really exciting.
5: And that's one thing I've noticed with 3CR presenters, that usually people stay on for approximately, well, not approximately, but at least a few years. There's no few months coming in and out. And even if they do, they're the minority, but yeah. everyone really falls at home here mm-hmm. and usually plants, like, their own little soil, as yeah. you say. Mm. Um, and can you tell us about the shows that you host or produce?
3: Yeah, I mean, um, what a show that I directly Produce, Produce, it's called In Your Face. So it's a show that is um, on the 3CR grid on Friday between 4 to 5 p.m. It's predominantly... Good plug. (laughs) It's a very
0: good show, so it's it's incredible.
3: Everybody should listen. I don't know if it's... Is it my headphones? Uh,
0: I think it's us. I don't know.
3: (laughs) Um, If you're not awake, you're awake now. Um, It's predominantly (laughs) um, a show that deals with um, LGBTQIA+, and... um, Feminist issues um, Obviously with You know Feminism And, and queern- uh, Queerdom There's such An intersection There anyway So mm. um, It's been touted as one Of the longest Running queer Shows in Australia I've right. been told, so I think it's up to and maybe Gab, if if you're around, um, it's either 20 or 25 years was just celebrated a couple of weeks wow. ago of the program airing here at 3CR. So that's that's pretty major. Um, Gab is probably going to write something up now. So the show deals with you know current social political issues, um, you know interviews, music and and commentary on current affairs. It is a home time program, so we try to sort of bring it back and not be too. You know mm. to in your face yeah. <laughs> but we do bring content that in, is in your face so we speak to a lot of people about really controversial um, queer and feminist um, type of topics mm. um, you know we've had people like Van Badham on the show speaking about the Me Too campaign mm. uh, which has been amazing and the history of that um, you know we've had Queer Space on, on our show as well speaking about the different programs they do um, You know, especially with the U equals U Sort of undetectable equals undetectable We've spoken a lot about HIV transmission and what that means And it's really exciting And it's exciting for me because, you know, I get to speak to uh, a lot of people that are doing activism But a lot of um, queer musician and artists that I know within my own networks and and community um, Come onto the show to speak about the amazing music they're making Which does, you know, push a lot of boundaries as well So... That's that. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like I've, you know, s- spoken a lot there. And then I hang out with uh, Current Affairs um, Programming for Breakfast, yes. as you said. Um, and that men- was my
5: next question, I guess. Oh, cool. Yeah, let's go, yeah. Mentoring. How does that yeah. look like? What is, what is the <laughs> mentoring thingy involved? When
3: people ask me, I say that I'm, I'm a producer and content support person, which, you know, that role has sort of evolved since when I started. I'm here at three c r so initially I felt like I was a lot more hands on and um, here a lot more than 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 I am now because I feel like um, the teams have evolved so well and mm-hmm. have become such a entity onto themselves that you just don 't really need me, so I'm just really background fighter at the moment, which is awesome because that was always the plan to to help build up um, the teams here and see how you would progress um and it's been incredible it's you know um I mean Tuesday Breakfast has is, is done some amazing work this year with your Me Too panel that was a few weeks ago and the incredible show that Tuesday Breakfast did for International Women's Day with uh, an, a diverse um, panel mm. of people as well so it's like the shows are doing so well and it's I, it sort of was born of uh, when when I did gab 's job and then I felt such an affinity to the teams that I said to gab hey um yeah. i don 't want to leave these people can can I still be involved and yeah. Therefore, this um, job title was created yeah. um and to 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 keep me continuing working with current affairs because we're in such a, a crazy climate, uh, climate now mm. within the global social-political sort of arena with the, the types of news that is out there that is, mm. is can I say crap on air? I just said it. Which yeah. is, you know, is unthinkable, some of the things that you hear out there. So it's really nice that we as a team, current affairs team, can provide really good commentary that is alternative to what we hear out there
5: yeah absolutely and Mm. i think you're also downplaying your mentoring as well because you still continue to mentor (laughs) us even though you may not know it when we do come to you for advice or when we even want to like run ideas by you and your contact list is incredible like MV pretty much knows everybody so whenever we need um so when we have a topic and we don't know who to interview, we'll just email um, MV or text them and be like, "Hey, we want to do this. Who do you think?" And MV will be like, "Da da da gives gives us a long list of people um, to interview. <laughs> so um, thanks, Aon. That's nice. Yeah. So MV is is is
7: incredible. I, um,
3: and I want to say that's only possible because of being here, though. Like. You know within you know being here for five years it's only possible knowing all these incredible like activists and um really socially aware people from working here um from working here i mean that's what mm. it is mm. um at three c r so it's it's a, it's a privilege um it's a privilege to work with you all but it's a privilege mm. to be in, in this building and work with these um incredible staff here yeah. mm.
5: Um, as we mentioned in the bio, you're not only a producer and presenter, but you're also a sound engineer. Yeah. Um, what does a sound engineer do, and how do they tell stories?
3: Yeah, I mean, like, the sound engineer, like my, my version of sound engineer, I, I consider myself a sound engineer, but also a sound artist. So my sort of stuff is about telling narratives, and as you read mm-hmm. from the bio, I, I sort of work on this concept of deconstruction. So I like to get lots of sounds and then manipulate them and kind of break them down and then put them together again and make my commentaries. Um, My sound doesn't have any beats, so you can't dance to it like Mm. um, cancer. Um, (laughs) But it's more about telling um, narratives. One of the first works I did was um, with my then-partner, O. um, They were going going through their gender affirmation transition, um, and we did a work together called And, Or, And Not. And it was um, a, a sort of... Uh, autobi- autobiographical um, collaboration between me and her in relation to our relationship during her transition, um, and she does projection as well. So it was a video work, and I did the sound to it. And it was a story about mm. you know love and intimacy relationship and the the gender binary. So mm. it was a story about gender affirmation and, and the sort of the gender binaries that we are restricted by by you know society telling us this is what you should be. So within the video work, the, because of the binary system, uh, images of zero and one, and mm. male, uh, typical male and female genitalia, but also intersex and trans genitalia came on. So it's it's an R-rated video, but what it was talking about is gender and sexuality. That's probably one of the most personal works I've done because it was a work between O and myself. Mm. Um, so, yeah. The stuff that I like to do is about storytelling through the sound, and mm-hmm. if I work with a co- collaborate with a visual artist, it's mm-hmm. about how that sound can be interpreted um, by visual format. Yes. But Check that was that was probably my most personal one, I and mean, we really um, and kind of helped our relationship as well putting it out there. Because I suppose when I came out as trans, then I also came out as the partner of a trans person, so mm. it changed our, um, dynamic and our, and our identity as well. Mm. Mm. And that really helped to open up, um, you know, dialogue, um, at that time. Mm. I'm going on a tangent, but at that time I started up a Facebook group for partners of trans people, because there's sort of different, um, you know, different hurdles that we, we face yeah. when identities change. So that, so that sort of born, sort of, Gave birth to a different sort of yeah. product or something like that. And
5: is that page still running?
3: So I, I, I'm no longer part of it because I'm no longer the partner of a trans yeah. person. So I'm no longer part of that group. So I, oh, I, I imagine so it's still um, running yeah. to some extent.
5: It, it would be important to share. I don't know if yeah. it's a private group or closed group
3: private okay, group, Private by private invitation, invitation, only. invitation it just, only, It just because a lot of stuff a lot of personal stuff is getting spoken about so it keeps course. it within mm-hmm. a sort of um, yeah. a tight group of people because of the nature,
5: yeah. and we're all about safety, um, I feel Standard, like we could talk to you all major day, major tangent I'm um, sure no, 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 no. so
3: that's what I like to do, storytelling that um, is a narrative, mm. um, and and um, you know, we do, you know, so I a work that I did with another person called The Return, but it's not connected yes. to this. Can you finish on one. that note? Yes, tell so us about that. So this was a couple commercial. of years. This was talk, I worked with a, a visual artist called Sam Doctor who lives in Sydney, and mm. he had gone to uh, Chiang Mai um, in relation to the way industrialization had uh, destroyed the land. And he had taken drones uh, drone pictures of the land and how that has affected... Um, the land there, but also the people's culture, language. Um, and I did the sound work for that. And, th- and that was telling a narrative of people returning to their home. Mm. And it's been s- uh, seen that it was destroyed. So, yeah. My work is not fun. <laughs> it's um, it's about melancholy and it's about darkness. Mm. But, but beautiful darkness. Ooh. That's how I like to call it. And to tell a narrative. So, this work... So, yeah. Yes. Do you can want to you, talk about yeah, the next yeah. thing? Yeah, yeah.
5: Can you tell us about... Because I'm conscious um, of the time as yeah, well. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> why you're... Because I'm already <laughs> a producer. <laughs> that's exactly it. So, so quickly, just give us what your work is. Oh, I mean, your, your work for Dark Merth, Yeah. what that looks like. So
3: I was very privileged. I, I worked with um, a friend um, um, called Yandel Bolton. She's a projection artist. Um, she's one of the co-founders of the Go To Street Projection Festival here. That happens whenever it happens in oh. June or July. And uh, she invited me to collaborate with her on a work last year for the Robin Boyd Foundation. She was working on a series of work called Resonance, which deals with the impermanence of um, the human form, mortality, and death. And um, I did the sound for a work called Matter, and the video work is. Um, it almost looks like a dust cloud, but it's just—it's talking about, you know, how we are just matter and, you know, we're kind of nothing. I mm. know yeah. oh, it's, 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 it's melancholy, but that's, that's what it is. So I just did the sound work for that, and it's really simple. It's it's sort of very granular and sort of sounds like wind. I'm not really going to talk about my work, but it's kind of that sort of thing. Mm. So Yandel was approached by the um the founder of dark mofo to present two works for a, a, a sort of a group exhibition called the return and this is the the work that got chosen to be shown um during dark mofo so look my my involvement is as a collaborator yandel walton who is incredible she's a melbourne-based a queer artist um she's a lead artist and i created the sound for it so yeah so i feel very privileged and honoured to be. Um, involved in a festival like that because, yes. as, mm-hmm. as if you've heard about it, it's it's pretty incredible and does push a lot of boundaries. And I feel that's that's what this work does. Um, really makes you think about our sort of our. our mm. We're not very significant in the grand scheme of things as human beings. So yeah. <laughs> you know, um, if we can make a difference uh, socially and politically with the work that in bringing it back here to Three South, we can do some incredible work and actually uh, you know help the the, the people that we we strive to give a platform for because i mean that's what we're doing here you know trying to give a voice to diverse people Mm. um ensuring that their commentaries make sense and are treated with respect Mm. and honor i mean that's what it's all about
5: Mm. excellent thank you so much for joining us (laughs) Mv, and we will put up the information for um for the show that your sound sound project will be featuring in so thank you so much Mv. have the best time in hobart
3: thanks peeps
4: You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR with Ayan, Lauren and myself, Anya. Next up we have Megan Pierce, manager of a program called Women Transforming Justice from Darabin Community Legal Centre. She's gonna to talk to us about a very topical issue which is the government's recent proposal for mandatory sentences for people who injure emergency workers. Thank you for joining us, Megan.
6: Hi Anya, how are you going? Good, how are you? I'm well, thank you.
4: Um, So the government's recent proposal for mandatory sentences um, for people who injure emergency workers, what exactly is the government trying to change?
6: Well, at present, people convicted of assaulting emergency workers, uh, which is defined to include the police, emergency department staff and paramedics, must be sentenced to at least six months of actual imprisonment. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are some exceptions to that law, which are designed to protect vulnerable people. And those mm-hmm. exceptions, excuse me, include um, where a person has a mental illness or an intellectual disability or an acquired brain injury or certain other conditions that, and there can be a link established between that condition mm-hmm. and um, the behaviour that um, resulted in, in them injuring an emergency worker. Mm-hmm. And there are some other categories of exceptions which include Um, if that person's um, mental impairment would mean that prison would be significantly more difficult or risky to their safety or if the person is between 18 and 21 and has um, what the legislation refers to as a level of psychosocial immaturity that makes it harder for them to regulate their behaviour. And then there's another slightly broader category um, that is called substantial and compelling reasons. Yeah. So those are the exceptions that the court can look to when, when they're deciding whether or not a person must spend at least six months in jail for assaulting an emergency worker.
4: Mm. So as I understand it, so there already exists a mandatory sentencing period for people who injure emergency workers, but the government is trying to sort of limit the, the discretionary powers the court and judicial officers have. Is that right?
6: That's That's exactly right, Anya. Right. So... I haven't seen the draft law. Mm. I don't believe it's been um, tabled in Parliament or made widely available. Mm. But the Victorian government has publicly stated that it will mandate actual jail time for what it describes as all attacks involving injuries on emergency workers. Mm. And it'll do that by putting these assaults in the same category as murder and rape, which already attract mm. minimum jail terms. And as you alluded to before, um, it will signif- it's proposing to significantly limit the exceptions so that it makes it much more difficult for the court to take into account uh, whether a person has um, the full capacity to regulate their behaviour because of their mental impairment and a person's life circumstances. So it essentially means that judges are less able to take into account circumstances of the cases before Mm. them and that these changes are much more likely to apply to a range of vulnerable groups.
4: Yeah, and what... What do you think are the practical implications of these changes? I'm, I'm thinking in particular um, the the emergency workers themselves, who you know might not want to report, um, you know, mm. assaults that happen to them. Yeah,
6: that that has absolutely been canvassed as one of the potential implications. Mm. I mean, people call emergency services in emergencies. It generally means that a person's family, friends loved ones or other professionals who might be with them and assisting feel that they can't manage a person's behaviour in a way that will keep everyone safe, including the person and the community. Mm. And so
4: Mm.
6: what we're likely to see is that um, the very people who are designed to be... um, So the very people that these laws, the current laws and the special exceptions are designed to protect may be more likely to go to jail. Mm. And that includes people with psychiatric health problems, acquired brain injuries, histories of complex trauma, and people subject to um, involuntary mental health treatment orders, mm. homeless people um and people with histories of exposure to violence
4: yeah,
6: and so it's very it's these very people who may be more likely to have contact with emergency workers and who are also more likely to have trouble managing that interaction mm. and as a result of these laws, these people may be more likely to go to Jack and spend actual time in prison. Um, Mm. There is also, as you note, um, significant implications for reporting. And so I think those implications apply to two main cohorts, that is um, first responders or emergency workers. And there was um, a report done by the Auditor General in 2015, which looked at Occupational violence experienced by emergency workers, mm-hmm. and whether their employers were doing what they should to ensure those workers were protected in their um, in their employment. Mm-hmm. And that report found that there is significant underreporting. There is already significant underreporting of um, the risks to safety experienced by emergency workers, and that's because it's a workforce largely filled with caring and compassionate people. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. What, mm. this, what these laws may well do is even further limit um, the likelihood of um, an emergency worker reporting um, a risk to their safety on the basis that they don't want to expose the person they're trying to assist to a six-month jail
4: term. Yeah, and um, that's there are also of, yeah. imp- mm. No, sorry. Oh, sorry. Keep sorry, going. Anya. Um, I was just going to say there mm. are
6: also um, implications for family members and loved ones who may be reluctant to seek the assistance of emergency services when their loved one is in distress or Mm. perhaps experiencing um, a life-threatening overdose. Mm. Um, And they may be reluctant to seek help because they're worried that they'll expose their loved one to a six-month jail term.
4: So
6: there are are significant repercussions both for the people these laws are designed to directly apply to, if you like, Mm. which includes some vulnerable groups and those who are trying to help them, including emergency workers and their families.
4: Yeah, and obviously we do think that it's important that emergency workers are better protected while, you know, they do their jobs, um, but these proposed oh, changes... Yeah, they seem... The, the changes seem more like a, you know, politicised response to, to push the tough-on-crime rhetoric. What do you think we should be doing instead?
6: Well, I mean, I completely agree, Anya. No one thinks that emergency workers shouldn't be safe mm. in their jobs mm-hmm. I think what we disagree about is the appropriate response yeah.
4: um,
6: the Auditor General's report that was published in 2015 said that what works uh, what what should be put in place are evidence-based approaches mm. what we know about a man- mandatory sentencing is that it is not evidence-based um, the Australian Law Reform Commission has made that statement very clearly and I know that Ari Freiberg who's the chair of the Sentencing Advisory Council has Made some public comments recently about um, the dangers of mandatory sentencing. Mm. We know that it doesn't deter people and it doesn't reduce crime. Yeah. Um, in terms of the evidence-based approaches, approaches that we know do work, mm. they are things like um, that don't. They certainly don't appeal to a law and order agenda, but they are things like um, clear guidance and policies for emergency workers um, mm. about what to do in certain situations. And policies and guidance that are well and consistently communicated to workforces, mm. training, an interdisciplinary approach, so that we have skilled people accompanying emergency workers and police to places where there's a risk, there's a concern about risks to the safety of workers. Mm. And we also know that, um, uh, and I mean that that involves resources.
4: Mm. And
6: we also know that um, well thought out and well planned risk management and even behaviour management plans Mm. that are based on like a close analysis of trends in relation to assaults on emergency workers and risks to those workers, Mm. as well as um, an understanding of the dynamics of those incidents. These are the kinds of things that work. Um, And just going back to the reporting issue, if these laws have the effect. Um, that people are concerned they will, which is that it'll reduce reporting by emergency workers Mm. of risks to their safety and um, threats to their safety, then that'll also limit our ability to understand what works in terms of responding to people.
4: Mm, That's right, yeah. Um, And we can keep talking about this, Megan, but unfortunately we have to wrap up now. Um, But thank you so much for joining us. No, of course. Um, that was Megan Pierce from Darabin CLC talking about the government's recent proposal for mandatory sentences for people who injure emergency workers. You can read more about this and sign the online petition on the Federation of CLC's website, www.fclc.org.au.
0: And now we're going to hear um, from Mark Bryan, who is the CEO of Tenants Union Victoria. Mark, thank you for joining us this morning. No problem. So let's get straight into it. Uh, Fairfax Media reported last week that more than 2,000 Victorians have been evicted from public housing since mid-2010, and at times these figures reached almost one person per day. Why is this happening, and how on earth is this able to be happening?
1: Uh, so first thing, uh, I thought those figures were actually a bit low, and I think there has probably been more evictions from public housing and community housing over that period of time. So um, in terms of the reasons that that's occurring, um, there's quite a few contributing factors to that. One of the most significant ones is the public and community housing sectors have been um, targeting people most in need over the last 10 to 15 years, and the result of that is you've got people with, multiple and complex needs who are moving into the public housing system in particular, and that's creating tensions within the system that are being managed in a sort of ham-fisted way through eviction. Uh, So often what occurs is um, the reasons that people have been allocated public housing in the first place don't go away once they're in public housing and they become a reason to be evicted from public housing. So that's one of the factors. And obviously the other sort of pretty large factor in uh, public housing are things like rent arrears. So um, because you're dealing with people with often very low incomes and complex needs, um, they uh, they may not be able to make their rent payments on time. So um, that's always an issue in the system.
0: Mm. And so I guess that must be why you've been quoted as saying that these Victorians shouldn't be treated as private tenants, um, but rather should have sort of a different set of, um, of rules. So is that in relation to these things like rental arrears and that sort of thing?
1: Yes, absolutely. So, um, so the principle, I mean, sometimes with these things you need to go back to basics, and the basic principle here is the social housing system is for people who can't survive in the private rental market. Uh, and so they can't survive in the private rental market due to cost or other um, other kinds of behaviour and their social housing system is there as a really important safety net for one of the necessities of life, housing. Mm. So, um, so what you should have in the social housing system is better safeguards that treat eviction as a last resort and that should be true across the whole rented sector but particularly in social housing where it's often housing of last resort so um, so that means that once a person's evicted from uh, the social housing system, they're going to go into homelessness for a period of time. Uh, and we should try to avoid that. It's much more expensive and much worse outcome for the person than the alternative, which is to have really robust policies and procedures in the social housing system to ensure that, eviction is genuinely the last resort and other things are tried before moving to eviction. Mm. Now, in the public housing system, there are some good processes, but I think the experience in a number of areas is that they're not uniformly applied and that they could be strengthened. So where, for example, uh, someone has a mental illness and they have an episode, the solution shouldn't be move to eviction. The solution should be, We need to engage support services to get the person over the hump that they're currently experiencing, stabilise their housing and treat the underlying problem. That's what the social housing system is for.
0: So I guess what you're talking about is not just a roof over somebody's head but sort of a holistic, um, a, a recognition that housing is just one need that a person may have and that other things will feed into the stability or not of that housing?
1: Yes, absolutely right. So, um, housing is a necessary condition for people's um, social and economic participation, and in the worst case, it's a stable housing is necessary to actually help people recover. Mm. So if you don't if you don't have that stable housing, all of the other interventions will be will fail. Uh, so it's really important to keep someone safely housed while you take care of the underlying problems particularly now where most of the social housing allocations are to people who have very significant underlying problems. They're not just on low incomes or very low incomes, but they've often got other very complex needs.
0: Mm. And on that note, I'd like to really quickly talk about um, the interaction between These like the public housing and these evictions and and family violence because Royal Commission into Family Violence was pretty clear that the existing public support, um, public housing support available for victims of family violence at the time that all of the investigations were happening um, were not adequate, basically. And I was just wondering um, what the situation looks like for victims of family violence post-Royal Commission um, and if... I guess, if those issues are taken into account when these evictions are being planned?
1: So the short answer to that is, um, yes, there is some account taken of family violence matters, but those the policies and procedures around uh, family violence are being strengthened as part of an overall response to, to family violence across the government. And there's quite a few things going on in the social housing space that are particular to family violence. Um, so, one of the, uh, so again, one of the problems that uh, the system needs to deal with effectively is what happens when there is an episode of family violence. And um, obviously the, prim- the primary focus is to make sure that the victim is safely housed, um, but also you will create other problems if there's not a suitable response to the perpetrator and keeping them housed. Mm-hmm. So this is a good example, albeit tough, um, where you actually need to provide a decent housing response so that you can work with the perpetrator about the underlying behaviour. Uh, there's also, um, on top of access to the social housing system, uh, there's also a number of other programs that are being strengthened within the housing orbit to help people who are tenants in the private rental market. So um, part of that is law reform of the Residential Tenancies Act to make it easier for victims of family violence to either get out of a tenancy that they're involved with or create a tenancy that they might be uh, uh, a part of but they want in, they want to maintain in their own name so so mm. they they're all um, those provisions will also apply to the public housing system and uh, last but not least there is an issue about uh, family violence and the consequences of family violence that can often be applied to the victim like um, the perpetrator smashes up the house mm. and the victim is then jointly liable for the, the damage to the house so there is work being done now to try to strengthen the policies to make sure that the consequences of family violence both uh, financial and in terms of the housing itself aren't vested on the victim in any way mm.
0: fantastic thank you so much for that mark it was really important um, and we appreciate your time this morning that was Mark O'Brien from the Tenants Union of Victoria and if you want more information or you need help with any of these sorts of issues, please give the Tenants Union a call on 94162577 7, or you can go to www.tuv.org.au
4: Listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR with Ayan, Lauren, and myself, Anya. Um, we have uh, quite an exciting announcement to make. From today, every first Tuesday of each month, we would be interviewing someone from Queer Space, which is a fantastic program um, which is part of Drummond Street Services. And today we have Mark Camilleri, senior child and family practitioner, um, who is um, an integral part of Queer Space. Thanks for joining us, Mark.
7: Good morning, thank you for having me.
4: Anytime.
7: <laughs> well, actually, any <laughs> first few of the month. Any first Tuesday of the month, you're welcome. It's something wonderful. <laughs> it really is. <laughs>
4: um, can you tell us briefly about um, Queer Space and the kind of services you provide?
7: Yeah, so Queer Space is sort of Melbourne's premier queer-led, queer led queer run so all the practitioners are queer Mm. for the queer community. So we sort of say, yeah, we have the whole range. We have about 20 practitioners from the LGBTIQ community, and we provide the services, counselling, case management, support for LGBTI community. So it's sort of for the community, by the community, Mm. and it sort of makes that a little bit of a safe space because you don't have to go there to sort of... You know, when you see a non-queer practitioner, sometimes you have to go through that little thing of like, do I have to school them or coach them on what are some of the yeah. issues that are unique to being um, queer? Mm-hmm. Um, so it just takes away all that little, uh, the, the, the little bit of like having to explain what it's like to, you know, go through stigma discrimination, be a minority, mm-hmm. some of the difficulties, unique difficulties that we face as a community. Mm-hmm. And the other good thing about it is um, that Because we have that lived experience, Mm -hmm. um, it sort of you know it can start it can start um, a a different type of rapport, a different type of relationship building that you might not have with a non queer practitioner. Mm -hmm.
4: You don't have to explain yourself from the beginning to be able to. No, no, that's right. And
7: you know because uh, you know it sort of creates sort of a, a dynamic that sort of because as queer practitioners as well, we all sort of work quite closely together Mm. so um yeah so it makes this sort of a particularly um in the area of trans and gender diverse you know like almost Mm. half our practitioners come from that trans and gender diverse spectrum Mm. so you know there's not a lot of trans and gender diverse practitioners out there Mm. so and particularly for for people that are trans and gender they have extra barriers as part of that lgbti spectrum that um You know that can be um mitigated by having someone who comes from that background.
4: yeah, absolutely. um and mark, yes, you so. you're involved in a program called Q Health. Um, can you tell us more about that?
7: Yeah, so what happened was um there was um a bit of drug and alcohol money around, and we were finding for a lot of our queer clients mm. they're having to fit into these heterosexual, heteronormative sort of services, mm. and particularly again, like particularly if you're trans and you want to go into a rehab. And they only mm. have like, you know, to do, which rehab do they go into the men's or the women's? And more like, well, this is like really, you know, and we have, do have different unique, uh, issues that are separate to the, um, hetero and cis communities. Mm. So we, um, yeah, so us and Mary Health, Drama Street Services, Queer Space and Mary Health, um, we said, well, let's, let's, um, it's a demonstration project. So it's going, it's the first year that it's been going. It's just coming up to actually, um, June, uh, it's already uh, June the 30th will be the end of the first year of the program. Oh, amazing, yeah. And so it's a specific service for LGBTI people who provide free counselling, case mm. management, care planning, care coordination, relapse prevention, and it's not only for LGBTI people themselves, self-identified, but it might be like for someone's family, as an LGBTI person, could be the siblings, could be a partner, so yeah, so it's really really good in that sense. It's uniquely ours.
4: Yeah, like a holistic sort of program.
7: Definitely, we do lots of wraparound services. So like, I might be seeing someone who's got some um, problematic drug use,
4: mm. and then
7: my other colleague counsel over here might be seeing that person's partner who mm. doesn't have the problematic drug use, and then my other colleague over here might be seeing the child of those people. Yeah. Um, that um, to you know what you do when mummy or daddy does X Y or Z.
4: Mm, that sounds like a fantastic program. And let's talk um, logistics. How do people get in contact with Queerspace?
7: Um, well, we do have a 1-800 number, which is great. So it's 1-800-LGBTIQ. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, yep. that was really good for us to whip that one up. <laughs> but, yeah, so it's just 1-800-LGBTIQ. Free call cool number. That'll take you through the intake. Mm-hmm. We'll do a bit of a, you know, just a bit of a like, oh, well, what do you think you might, the needs might be? They might be for yourself or they might be for someone else. And, um, yeah, our intake workers will work, you know, will do the assessment and then refer them on to whatever the, the, the best service within that we can provide.
4: Mm. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us, Mark. We'll, we'll put all Fantastic. those um, information up on our website. Um, great. And, and we'll great see you in four weeks. <laughs>
7: <laughs> Excellent. <laughs>
4: That was Mark Camilleri, Senior Child and Family Practitioner at Queer Space at Drummond Street Services. You can give them a call at 1 800 LGBTIQ. Oh,
2: If you want
1: to hear us slam the atomic industry, then tune into the radioactive show on 3CR,
7: 10am Saturdays. Welcome back to
0: the... Last few minutes of Tuesday breakfast on this beautiful freezing Tuesday, the 5th of June. You're with myself, Lauren, Anya, and Ayan. Um And we are grateful to have a few minutes just to talk to you about the very exciting Radiothon, which is coming next week. Yes. Jump in. Match my level of enthusiasm. Come on, guys. <laughs>
5: <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so we would love it if you could contact us on um, Facebook Um, Twitter, Twitter, Instagram, whatever. All of our handles. And um, just let us know if you want to come on air Mm. and um, talk about your love for Tuesday breakfast Mm. or talk about your love for community radio. Mm. And also perhaps donate to our Give Now page, which is um, published on our 3CR Facebook page as well. So call in, you know, if you want to give shout-outs to whomever. Um, that would be greatly appreciated but starting from next week we're concentrating on you know um, uh, raising money for Radiothon Mm because it's really important and I think have we discussed where the money goes? I don't think we have no yeah so everything that we do here it's through subscriber donations and um, becoming a subscriber and also donating during Radiothon and also donating any other mm. time of the year so that money pays for the equipment it pays for um pays for a lot of things everything it keeps that makes the things, lights on keeps the lights on yeah. like literally yeah it keeps literally yeah. and Actually,
0: yeah. 3CR runs I think there's there's what five or six paid staff two of whom are part-time, if I've got this wrong, correct me, and everybody else here is a volunteer. Mm. Pretty much every program that you hear, um, the producers, the, we, we're all volunteers who have to be trained by people mm. and the trainers are all volunteers. It's um, a labor of love, really. It yeah. is. And, you know, I think it's such an important, um, it's an important service and especially I'm so proud of the work that we've done in mm. the last, you know, the nine months that I've been here. But meeting all of the people who every week... Um, come up with creative and amazing, fascinating ways to tell people's stories and to give people a platform. Mm. Um, yeah, if, if you are a fan of Tuesday Breakfast, we would actually just love to hear from you if you'd like to call in next week mm. um, and tell us on air what it means to you. Um, and obviously, if you'd like to donate, we wouldn't be mad at that.
4: And thank you so much for the people who've already donated. We're sitting at $420, Ooh. which is almost, you know, almost one third of our goal. Mm-hmm. Yes. And no money is too great. $5, $10,
5: yeah. like, honestly, they're all at up. Yeah. So whatever you can give, please give generally, generously, (laughs) generally, lol, (laughs) generously. Um, But yeah, and also just a quick mention of a show that we think you guys and gals and beautiful human beings should listen to. So it's a podcast called Unravel Podcast. Um, It also featured. So the story that I'm going to quickly um, talk about is a story about a 17-year-old Aboriginal boy named Mark Haynes who was um, found, um, he died and his body was found on the train tracks in Tamsworth, northern New South Wales in 1988. So the podcast looks at the case and looks at the racial elements that were also involved in the case. And I guess the podcast is amazing because it talks about the, the way Aboriginal deaths are in investigated by the criminal justice system and the way the victim and the families are negatively portrayed in the media. There's also an amazing article by Amy McGuire, a South Sea, the Rumble journalist, and she wrote an article for Medium called The Cases of Missing and Murdered Aboriginal People Need to Be Heard. And yeah, it pretty much talks about how um, the deaths... Uh, Aboriginal deaths are discussed or not discussed, and why there has to be a cry for justice, and why we need to do more in highlighting these cases. So the podcast that I mentioned um, focuses on one case, and that is Mark Haynes. And we've put up both the article and the link to the podcast on our Facebook page. So go there, have a listen. I think they're up to the second episode. So um, yeah, and there's also a Curtain podcast. Um,
0: that Lauren knows about. Yes, the Curtain Podcast is amazing. It's Amy McGuire and um, a, a male journalist whose name escapes me right now. Sorry to you, whoever you are. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's really incredible. It, it looks at. Um, It re-examines cold case murders, um, particularly focusing on Indigenous people um, whose deaths have been forgotten or were in circumstances um, where people didn't want to investigate them fully. And it's very, very fascinating and really important journalism. So have a listen.